Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the coronavirus through the lens of the systems it is affecting, including the incompetence of a government that doesn't believe in governing, the dangers of the lack of universal access to medical care, and the interdependency of international economies, regardless of the inevitable racism that flares up in times of panic. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, All In with Chris Hayes, Ring of Fire Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, The Real News, and Past Present. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers grilled senior administration officials over their response to the crisis. This is Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy, who on Tuesday blasted the acting Homeland, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf for struggling to produce basic facts about the coronavirus outbreak. You're supposed to keep us safe. My budget supports the men and women You're of the, the Department Secretary of Homeland, of Homeland Security. Yes, sir. And you can't tell me if we have enough respirators. What I would tell you is that the budget, my budget, our operations are focused not only on the men and women of DHS, making sure they're protected to do their jobs, to screen individuals coming in. We're working with HHS, CDC, and their budget to ensure that they have enough medical equipment. Do we have enough face masks? We, uh, for the Department of Homeland Security, we I'm do. I'm not asking for the Department of Homeland Security. Are you looking? I'm asking for the American people. For the, for the entire American public? Yes. No, I would say probably not. Okay, how short are we? I, I don't have that number offhand, Senator. I will get that for you. Okay, but but I want to be sure I understand. You, somebody, yes, sir, is doing modeling. Yes, sir. On how many cases were anticipated? You're yes, sir. Just not aware of that. You're asking me a number of medical questions that I'm asking CDC you questions and HHS because you're Secretary of are the Department on. of Homeland Security, and you're supposed to keep us safe. Yes, sir. And you need to know the answers to these questions. And how far away are we from getting a vaccine? In uh, several months. Well, that's not what we just heard testimony about. Okay. Who's on first here? So that was the Republican Louisiana Senator, John Kennedy, a questioning the head of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Laurie Garrett. Pretty abysmal situation. Where, where we are right now is that everybody is recognizing, oops, it was a big mistake by the Trump administration to obliterate the entire infrastructure of pandemic response that the Obama administration had created. Why did he do it? Well, it certainly wasn't about the money, because it wasn't a heavily funded program. It was certainly because it was Obama's program. And explain, you're talking about the unit within the Centers for Disease Control. No, we're talking about something much vaster than that. It was a special division inside the National Security Council, a special division inside of the Department of Homeland Security that Bozo was talking from, and— uh, collaborating centers in HHS headquarters in Washington, um, the Office of Global Health Affairs, um, and the Commerce Department, Treasury Department. But what, what Obama understood dealing with Ebola in 2014 is that any American response had to be an all-of-government response, that there were so many agencies overlapping, and they all had a little piece of the puzzle in the case of a pandemic. Just th- do this mental exercise with me, Amy. If we, if we get to the situation where we're anything like what's going on in China right now, then our Department of Commerce— our Department of Transportation and our Department of USDA would have to collaborate to get food deliveries 
all over America so that parts of America don't starve. And you could see in China convoys, hundreds of 18-wheeler vehicles completely full of food coming into Wuhan every single day. Do we have the capacity to coordinate that? What the Obama administration realized was that you can't corral multiple agencies and things from private sector as well as public sector to come to the aid of America unless you have some one person in charge who's really the manager of it all. And that in his case, it was Ron Klain, who uh, had worked under uh, Vice President Biden, and he was designated with an office inside the White House to give orders and coordinate all these various things. Well, that was all eliminated. It's gone. And now they're hastily trying to recreate something. And, and last night, there were many names tossed around about who he was going to appoint as head of the response. He had previously gone on the record, President Trump, saying, I have great faith in Secretary Azar and my HHS secretary will be in charge. And we're told from multiple sources that right up until they got on stage for that press briefing, Azar thought he was in charge. And then the president says, and here's my good friend Mike Pence, and he's taking charge. Well, there are reports that Trump was very angry that Azar had even raised the concerns he did publicly because Trump was majorly concerned about the markets and that he had brought people in to the United States um, from the cruise ship. Right. Um, they were Americans. And they were, as you were saying, sitting in a Petri dish. That cruise ship of thousands, hundreds of people got infected, even when they were in lockdown. Which we're approaching a thousand. It may very well end up that half of the crew and passengers uh, will be infected before that story finishes playing out. I want to turn to President Trump addressing reporters Wednesday night at the White House press briefing room. One of the reporters questioned Trump on his comments about how former President Obama handled the Ebola outbreak in 2014. I want to talk to you yes. about 2014. During, during the Ebola crisis, you said you wanted a quote-unquote full travel ban. You said Obama was a quote-unquote stubborn dope not for doing it. You said, just stop the flights, dummies. You also said it was a quote-unquote total joke uh, to appoint someone to lead the Ebola response with, quote, zero experience in the medical field. Now you've appointed They listened to a lot of what I had to say. I did. So and they how does that square with what you're doing They now? listened to a lot. Well, because this is a much different problem than Ebola. Ebola, you disintegrated, especially at the beginning. They've made a lot of progress now in Ebola. But with Ebola, we were talking about it before. You disintegrated. You got Ebola. That was it. Uh, this one is different, much different. This is a flu. This is like a flu. And uh, this is a much different situation than Ebola. But uh, and we're working on Ebola right now, by the way, we're working on certain areas of the Congo. The Congo has Ebola and caused largely by the fact that they have war and people can't get there. We can now treat Ebola in that at that time. It was infectious, and you couldn't treat it. Nobody knew anything about it. Nobody had ever heard of anything like this. So it's a much different situation. So that was President Trump. Lori Garrett, you wrote a book about Ebola. You wrote Ebola, the story of an outbreak. But also now, they're trying to take money from the Ebola budget, dealing with Ebola, mm -hmm. not to mention slash the CDC budget. Um, you, his latest budget that went to Congress was um, cutting health services in this country. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we've gotten used to Trump being a pile of contradictions and, and misstatements. Um, but in the case of an epidemic, this is incredibly dangerous. I think part of what Donald Trump's been doing is he's been playing to Rush Limbaugh and the far right, because they have started a narrative that says— well, they have two narratives. One is, uh, there isn't any epidemic. This is all fake news, exaggerating everything to undermine 
uh, Trump's bid for re-election. There's a lot of that going on. Rush Limbaugh is leading that charge. Another narrative out there coming from the right is this was all made in a laboratory in China, and this is an evil bioterrorism something or other, and our president has to show strength at this time. Um, both are lies, and both um, people who play around a lot on social media, regardless of their political stance, are absorbing them because they don't understand where it's coming from. I wanted to go to a CNN reporter, Marshall Cohen, tweeting, quote, Rush Limbaugh and right-wing fringe sites are attacking Dr. Nancy Messonnier, a top CDC official handling the coronavirus response, because she is Rod Rosenstein's sister. They're spreading the lie that she's part of the deep state and trying to tank the markets to weaken Trump, unquote. This is a clip of Dr. Messonnier discussing the coronavirus crisis. Some community-level interventions that may be most effective in reducing the spread of a new virus, like school closures, are also the most likely to be associated with unwanted consequences and further disruptions. Secondary consequences of some of these measures might include missed work and loss of income. I understand this whole situation may seem overwhelming and that disruption to everyday life may be severe, but these are things that people need to start thinking about now. So that's Dr. Nancy Messonnier, Laurie Garrett. Yeah, well, she's right, and we all need to be getting ready. I mean, we don't need to be distracted by this insane political situation. We need to be focused on what we're going to do when this virus sweeps across America. And it's no longer a, you know, distant, crazy idea, uh, the kind of things I've received death threats. Every time I'm on your show, somebody calls and tries to kill me. And every time I'm on your show, I get loonies telling me they know of a secret cure. You know, it's this stuff you rub off a tree or it's this thing you put under your pillow or whatever. And if I don't show positive response and say, oh, yay, I'm going to tell America to use that junk you scraped off a tree, then they threaten me. And I, you know, it's there are people who want any epidemic situation to be something they can exploit for a set of principles they have or ideas. But this is not the moment for that. We have a very narrow window, America, to get our act together. And getting our act together means at an individual level, at a community level, at a business level, at a school level. And there it even seems that President Trump doesn't understand the deadly nature of this. He was being questioned by um, Sanjay Gupta of CNN at that news conference, um, and he did not seem to understand that the coronavirus is, what, 20 times more uh, deadly than the flu. No, more like 2,000 times. Um, no, he, he completely got his numbers wrong, although numbers probably are not his forte to begin with. Um, the He said— well, let's, let's say it correctly rather than misinform. The coronavirus mortality rate is running somewhere between two to four percent. Um, and depending where you look and which population groups you're in. Um, the 1918 flu, which was the most devastating influenza in the history of our species, was less than two percent. So this is already more lethal than the pandemic of 1918. Garden variety, everyday flu, it's about 0.1 to 0.01 percent uh, fatal. Final comments as we look at what's happening in the world, every continent but Antarctica. Um, what does it mean to have a unified response? Well, we won't have a unified response. We don't. 
It's fragmented. It's fragmented within countries, and it's fragmented among countries. Already, everybody's sealing their borders. Everybody starts saying, no, you can't fly here. You can't. What we're going to see and what's unfolding now, and the reason that the smart guys on the stock market are getting upset, is that the whole globalization system, the, the, the chain of supply and shipping, is fragmenting. And it's fragmenting amid fear and amid the false idea that in the age of air travel, you can somehow stop a virus by just saying, no, 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 you're not allowed to land at that airport. Well, how did this fellow way up in Northern California in a rural area get infected? Uh, you know, we've been screening at San Francisco airport since day one of this mess. So I, I think that the problem is we don't have a solidified response. And what you're going to see, and it's already playing out, is this NIMBY attitude. You know, we already have states saying, we're not going to allow you to put quarantine people in our state. Ship them to another state. And, oh, my state has plenty of masks on supply. We're not sharing them with the bozos next door. In every tabletop exercise I've ever been in for the last 30 years, role-playing, what would happen in an outbreak? The solidarity between the states of the United States completely breaks down. States put borders. They won't let you come on a highway. and They, they block goods from leaving the state. No, I, that may be destined for Illinois, but we in Indiana want those supplies. You can't take them to Illinois. Wall Street closed down big again today, which makes it actually the worst week since the financial crisis in 2008. And it is just becoming abundantly clear every day uh, how dangerous it is to have an incompetent administration leading us through a major crisis. I mean, it's, it's worth taking just a second to look, uh, sort of walk back and, and, and walk through the facts about how this administration has handled this crisis so far, right? First, the administration had officials who overrode the advice of the Centers for Disease Control, and they chose to bring back a bunch of infected Americans from a cruise ship on the same plane as non-infected Americans. The CDC, who are, of course, the experts in this, said, don't do that. (laughs) And the Trump administration officials did it anyway. And that was the first in a, a series of decisions just showing how out of their depth they've been. Right. So you've got the the folks from the cruise ship back in the U.S. And then they have this other population that that had come back from Wuhan. Right. These are Americans been brought back correctly. Right. From the epicenter of the uh, of the disease in Wuhan, China. And we now know, thanks to a whistleblower complaint, that the government workers sent to deal with those Americans, the ones brought back from Wuhan, were dangerously unprepared. Quoting from uh, the Times article, without proper training or equipment, some of the exposed staff members moved around freely on and off the Air Force bases where the quarantines were happening, including one person staying in a nearby hotel and leaving California on a commercial flight. According to the same complaint, which is from a senior leader in the Department of Health and Human Services, officials were not provided safety protocol training until five days into their assignment. And it was so disconcerting to these frontline workers who've been sent in to treat these quarantined Americans that the whistleblower says their phone was ringing off the hook with panic calls. And this was happening on an Air Force bases uh, where the U.S. government was quarantining the sick Americans. And one of those bases uh, was Travis Air Force Base, which is in Northern California. 
So then we got news two days ago that the first instance of what's called community transfer had happened with the virus, right? A new patient tested positive for coronavirus who had not traveled to any of the infected areas. So the origin of how that person got the virus was unknown. But it just so happens that she lives in the same county as Travis Air Force Base. In fact, she was first uh, treated at a hospital 15 minutes from Travis Air Force Base. Just a, a string of decisions uh, that show really incredible incompetence on the part of this administration. And along the way, of course, uh, as the virus has grown, chiefly globally, right, outside the U.S., at every instance they have chosen that instead of being transparent and factual and clear, they've gone for a kind of combination of, of happy talk and wrong information. They've repeatedly been contradicting their own experts in the government, the president said there's going to be a vaccine in a short while. Experts say, no, that's not true. It'll be at least a year. The president says it's exactly like the flu. That's not true. Right now, the mortality rates for this virus, coronavirus, are anywhere from 10 to 20 times what the flu is. He said there are only 15 cases in the U.S. He keeps repeating this, but that's just not the number. There are 62. The numbers are what the numbers are. <laughs> He says it will disappear like a miracle and the price cases will probably go to zero. That's not what the CDC expects. It's just. And tonight we have news uh, that guess what? There's another case in California. In Santa Clara County, uh, another case of community transfer. Right. So there's a second case where we don't know uh, where the virus came from. And experts say this probably means there are two population centers and probably a lot more cases in the U.S., which is not surprising. This is what the CDC told us to expect. The White House is now muzzling their own experts, taking control of the message. Everything now has to be run through the uh, office of the vice president, Mike Pence. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> here's the thing about this, right? When you have uh, any kind of public health emergency, any kind of epidemic, what you want is the science leading the politics, not the politics leading the science. And, and this is so crucial, because when you do not get that, you literally get people killed. And here's the thing. We've already seen that happen with this very outbreak, right? The reason epidemiologists say the coronavirus spread so rapidly in the first place in China was precisely because the Chinese government attempted to keep a lid on the information about it. They didn't want people to know the virus was happening. Today we found out in Iran... Uh, there's a source, death, uh, a source that told the BBC, Iran's death toll is not 40, which is what their official statistics say, it's 210, right? And that suggests we're dealing with a virus infection rate that's five times what they've been willing to admit. And that denial costs people their lives, right? If you keep the information away from people, they can't prepare, Right now in the U.S., the biggest obstacle that we face is just a, a testing shortage. The first thing we have to do is figure out the scope of the problem, and right now we do not have the test to do that. In this country, we've only tested around 460 people. As of today, all right, to put that number in context, South Korea has run more than 35,000 tests. Right? They're testing at massive scale, and the tests the CDC developed have been defective. The labs running the tests are not confident in the results. So now, for example, the state of New York is going to make its own coronavirus test. And while all of this is happening, the coronavirus point person, the guy who's supposed to be running it all, Vice President Mike Pence,
spent last night hosting a $25,000 plate fundraiser in Florida for congressional Republicans. He followed that with an interview this morning with right-wing conspiracy theorist Rush Limbaugh. A guy who claimed the coronavirus is like the common cold. President, for his part, Donald Trump, uh, yesterday he had a 45-minute meeting uh, with two actors who are working on a deep state right-wing play. The interesting detail about that is that it was scheduled for 15 minutes, but he just really wanted it to go longer. So they were ready to be in and out in 15, but the president just wanted to talk to them longer. So it was 45. That's where the priorities of the administration are, right? And at times like this, you need leadership at the top. You need someone to deal with the facts as they are. And I have to say, having been uh, in this very position, right, hosting a cable news show during the Ebola uh, epidemic, that was in some ways scarier because of just how um, deadly the virus was, but it was also far less of a threat directly to the U.S. because it was not as communicable. During that period, Donald Trump and the right-wing media was engaged in the most hysterical, irresponsible, demagogic frenzy of panic and fear-mongering. And I just, I don't want to do that with the coronavirus, right? Like, I, I take this job seriously. I take the platform seriously. It can be managed. This can be managed. There's no reason for panic, right? It could get pretty bad. It could. It could spread fairly far. But there's a huge spectrum of possibility, both in terms of infection rates and mortality and treatment. A lot of it depends on what people in charge do and what you do. Like, wash your hands. <laughs> No, seriously. <laughs> but the core principle for any of us that have a platform, you know, and this should be up to and including the president of the United States, is just to be transparent and clear about what the science says, what the risks might be. And right now, that basic, basic threshold is just not being met. Now, just a quick moment to thank some patrons. These are the patrons who've been going above and beyond, not just to the, the regular membership level, but one up from that or even more. And they've been donating for a long time. Some of these names I recognize as not just being a few years old, but 10 years even. So huge thanks to Ronald M., Aaron C., Brian P., Jamie A., Michael W., Jared, just Jared, He's one of those single-name people. Uh, Brandon H., Mara H., she's the one who I, I really noticed today because uh, her 10-year anniversary is coming up. I know that she signed up about nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, something like that. So that's exciting. And finally, Natalia M. and Billy M. So huge thanks to all of you who have been continuing to support the show for such a long time. As you know, I could not do it without you. As for the rest of you, a bit of what you've been missing out on, in my most recent bonus episode, I continued discussing a secret project I'm working on, no hints. I said that Alan from Connecticut is like a good oxidizing agent. What does that mean? There's only one way to find out. I had bonus clips about Bloomberg buying the silence of his critics, among others, and we'd been talking about millionaires and billionaires and I had done a terrible job trying to paint a mental image to differentiate between the two, but I got a voicemail that lays it out perfectly. Have a listen. Billionaires are much, much richer than millionaires. To grasp how different a million is from a billion, think about it like this. A million seconds 
is a little under two weeks. A billion seconds is about 32 years. The first is the length of a vacation. The second is significant fraction of a lifetime. I could not have said it better myself, and I definitely did not say it better myself. All of that was in just the most recent bonus episode this week. If you want to sign up and support the show, we could really use your help right now. We're still struggling to make up for the shortfall in our ad revenue that started in January. To get our bonus content, like what I was describing, that's six bucks a month on Patreon. We have higher levels for those who can and want to give more to support the show, but we also have an ad-free version that you can get for just two bucks a month, because I appreciate any dollar amount you can afford to sign up visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is linked right in the show notes on your device and on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bestofleft. Thanks for your support. One of the things that the, the coronavirus, it, it appears to be doing, um, is not just, well, I think, shining a light on the general incompetence of the Trump administration and their defunding of our ability to respond from a, a health perspective and from a logistical perspective, it is shining light on the relationship the United States has with the rest of the world in terms of relying on them for all sorts of products that we use in our daily life that we really have no awareness of where, where it comes from or what's involved with it. Yeah. I mean, I think the attacks on Trump from the left on the, the sort of incompetence and the various cuts to pandemic response programs need to be tempered a little bit because for 40 years, we've had this bipartisan uh, uh, initiative to outsource our manufacturing base to not just other countries abroad, but largely to one country abroad, and that would be China, and and to centralize the supply chain for, for just about everything uh, in this one region of the world. And it's not just that it was China. It, it could have been any country in the world. When you centralize the supply and 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 make sh you know have a situation where your 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 product lines are all coming from one place then any shock to the system in that one location is going to be incredibly magnified and so this is not about just china per china this is about the the concentration of uh, the 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 outsourcing in general, and what it created is exactly what we're seeing. So you know, large sections of China have been shut down, put on quarantine. Workers don't want to go back to the factories because they fear uh, catching the virus, uh, and supply, production has has basically shut down. In uh, large parts of of China, Wuhan is a, is a big manufacturing re region. It's it's almost like the the Detroit of uh, of of China, what Detroit was in the 1960s. Right. And right. and when you do that, uh, you know, 
especially with the way in which logistics works these days with just-in-time shipping and uh, component parts made in one part of the, the world and moved to another manufacturing location and put uh, into another part. Uh, it's not just the finished goods coming out of China, but those components, those intermediate goods that then don't get to a factory somewhere else in the world. And that factory needs to shut down or slow production. And so you can see how this just absolutely cascades all over the world, and, and it's going to lead to shortages. I mean, we're going to see it. This is baked in already. You can't just shut down production for a month and not expect consequences. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, uh, there's there's a lot to unpack there. And I should say that, you know, um, I've been, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little gadget lover. And, uh, you know, on like a Kickstarter and Indiegogo, those type of things, you get these, um get these emails and I look at the gadgets and there's like a thing that will inflate your bike tires and it's handheld and, uh, you know, they're doing the production in China. And then all of a sudden I get an email that, look, uh, we were expecting delivery in January of 2020, but, uh, the factories have been shut down for two or three months. We don't know when they're getting back in. And so this is going to slow things down. Well, this is this little specialty pro uh, product. It's not going to mean much to me, but the, Everything that's happening to that my little handheld, uh, you know, uh, bike pump is also happening to products that we use every single day. And yeah. just to, and you know, and, uh, just just, you know, that was policy. That wasn't just some unseen force and hand at the market that uh, just dictated that the Chinese were better at making stuff than any other place on earth. This was concerted policy to allow multinationals to seek the lowest common denominator, the cheapest labor costs, and the places where the, the logistics was most built up and move all of their production and all of their factories there. And there was a danger to that. Nobody bought, nobody sort of added in the hidden costs that we're seeing right now with uh, supply shocks and how that will, uh, you know, rebound all over uh, all over this this country and the world. Uh, right. We made a policy to stop producing in America, that we would be a service oriented, consumer oriented economy. And now we are at risk because of that fateful decision. Um, we only have about, uh, about five minutes left now. I want to get to, uh, the, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the piece that you wrote in terms of, you know, sure. that, that touches on, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the shortage of drugs that we're going to have drugs. And we don't really right. know exactly which drugs we won't have and when do we at this point? Well, I mean, it, it goes beyond drugs. First of all, I mean, uh, the, the largest segment of surgical masks, which are, you know, a way to stop respiratory diseases like this from spreading, come out of China. Um, uh, we know that penicillin and antibiotics and ibuprofen, all of these basic generic drugs all come out of uh, China. And, and, and more to the point, the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are used to manufacture prescription drugs all over the world, about 80% of those come from China and India. And even the, uh, that which comes from India gets part of its, uh, uh, part of its component parts 
from China. So we are very reliant as a world on China for these medications. And the question is why? And the answer uh, has a lot to do with the way that these generic drugs are contracted and sold, particularly to hospitals. So there are these bulk buying groups uh, known as group purchasing organizations or GPOs that purchase on behalf of hospital chains uh, and many hospital chains sort of agglomerated together. And the idea is, is intuitive, right? I mean, you know, you have uh, you have to buy these various supplies or various drugs, and uh, you know you'd probably get a better price if you buy a thousand of them than if you buy one at a time. So that's the idea behind it. However, the way that that market is structured is uh, it is it incentivizes one higher costs for these drugs and these supplies, and two. It creates a system where the group purchasing organizations are paid by the suppliers, and they have to give up large portions of their percentage uh, margin to the suppliers in order to get the market share. Uh, in, in, we only have four major buying groups, four major GPOs. Uh, across the country that service uh, all of the hospitals, the $300 billion in purchasing. And so if you get one of those contracts, you're in business. And if you don't, you can't stay in business. And so that has concentrated and, and, and harmed the proliferation of a generic drug industry. And then you have to pay so much to buy that access that you have to, you know, reduce those costs somewhere else down the chain. So it's almost impossible to create prescription drugs in the United States, given the labor and environmental standards that we have, because there's literally no money in it. So this incentivized the move of this entire industry into the hands of places like China. are, you know, number one, and we are literally the only developed country in the world without a coherent national health care system and infrastructure. We have 20 some odd million Americans who have absolutely no health insurance. We have over 100 million Americans. And frankly, I think you can make the argument that it's probably closer to 200 million Americans particularly if you include the one-third of seniors who are on Medicare Advantage using privatized, uh, you know, for-profit health insurance rather than Medicare, that, that probably two-thirds of us are underinsured. Our insurance will crap out if we get really sick. And we're looking at a pandemic? I mean, this is the strongest argument that can be made for Medicare for all, for a, a national single-payer health care system, like, like Canada has, like France has, like Germany has, like Spain has, like, like I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? Like every developed country in the world has a national health care system, except the United States. Now, President Obama tried to give us a national health care system. It was imperfect. 
it relied on the, the, the profit motive. It relied on, you know, heavily subsidizing the health insurance industry. But, you know, President Obama tried. I mean, this was this was like a, you know, a midstep. God bless him with Obamacare. And it would have covered everybody in America it would have done it, you know, at twice the expense of any other country in the world with most of the profits going to the health insurance industry and the for profit hospitals. But it would have worked. But John Roberts and four other conservatives on the Supreme Court blew a hole in the side of that, saying that Republican-controlled states could opt out of Medicaid expansion. And as a consequence of that, we've got tens of millions of people in this country with literally no health insurance and the possibility of a pandemic coming to our shores. And what do people who don't have health insurance or who are underinsured, who have $5,000 deductibles, and they're that 50% of Americans who could not survive a $500 expense. What do they do when they get sick? They stay home. Or they even, if, if, you know, if they're facing an economic hard times, and most of them are, we're talking you know, the bottom half of America economically, if they don't go to work, they probably don't get paid because they're hourly rather than salaried employees, or they don't have sick time or sick days or both. And so, you know, they go to work and they spread contagious diseases. And this is, you know, we got 35,000 Americans who die every year from the flu, and which is exacerbated by this exact same situation. I mean, the guy at the, you know, in the, 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 the cook or the, 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 the bus boy or the person hauling plates around in the restaurant where you're going to eat this week almost certainly does not have health insurance. And if that person has the flu or has a virus or has anything and sneezes on their hands or sneezes on your plate, you wouldn't even know it. And boom, we're getting sick just from going out to dinner. Every other country in the world has figured out that a national health care system is part of their national security infrastructure. And in fact, this is how it was presented by Franklin Roosevelt, for God's sake, when he proposed it back in the 1930s. By Harry Truman, when he proposed it in the 1940s. By Lyndon Johnson, when he proposed it in the 1960s. The Republican opposition to a national health care system literally goes back a half a century or more. I mean, you know, it goes back to the 30s. That's nearly a century. And a national health care system, first of all, it would cut our health care bill in half. We pay twice as much as Canada pays, and you don't see sick people in Canada uh, as a result of their health care system. You don't see a situation in Canada where people go to work and spread diseases or don't go to the doctor and get sicker and sicker and, and, and infect more and more people because they can't afford to go to the doctor. You just don't see it in Canada. We have that here in the United States right now. Odds are the person sitting next to you on the bus or the, the Uber driver driving your car, particularly if they're in the early stages of an infection when they're contagious, but they're not all that symptomatic, hasn't gone to the doctor, won't go to the doctor because they can't afford it. 
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. The coronavirus is obviously um, starting to sort of pick up notice. Uh, this is something, every time we have a kind of global outbreak like this, we need to think back to the global gutting of public health, which started with the Reagan administration in the 80s, but it's accelerated. World Bank and IMF austerity programs to this day uh, forced developing countries to cut and not invest in medicine. International pharmaceutical cartels don't invest uh, in responsiveness to diseases that emerge in the global economic periphery. Um, and in the United States, of course, decades of austerity have left people vulnerable. This really is another very obvious and great argument for having single-payer Medicare for all as a basic act of protecting global and national public health. Here is a hearing from yesterday with Congresswoman Jane Schakowsky from Illinois. This is on the House Budget Committee. Um, and she is going to be grilling um, Alex uh, Azar, who is of the uh, HH HHS, and there had been, yeah, go ahead. Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services. And uh, with regards to some comments that had been made, and she'll explain in the clip, about whether or not a corona vaccine would be affordable. Reaffirm, then you're saying it will for sure be affordable for anyone who needs it. I'm saying we would we would want to ensure that we work to make it affordable, but we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest. The priority the, is to get uh, vaccines and therapeutics. Price controls won't get us there. Mr. Secretary. So that is extraordinary. Take that in. This is the head of the government health and human services. We talked yesterday about why having state funding and state industry that provide the most basic services. And in this case, that certainly was not like, this is John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a great progressive intellectual. He was not a socialist, okay? This is very basic stuff that anywhere out of extreme, extreme danger to everybody on the planet, capitalism, we would all agree on. And you have the, this is not the CEO of a pharmaceutical company trying to undermine important public policy through donations and propaganda. But an agent of that propaganda 
as head of health and human services under Donald Trump. This is a tweet uh, from David Griscom, producer on the Michael Brooks show, that is actually really important. So he's quote tweeting Michael McAuliffe, who uh, quoted that exchange. Azar, Azar, who's uh, health and human services, refuses to promise a coronavirus vaccine will be affordable for anyone. We would want to ensure that we work to make it affordable, but we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest. Price controls won't get us there. And David Griscom wrote, one day we will regard the cruel cost-benefit analysis of capitalism that results in so many deaths as part of the ma- as part of the massive death tolls of this barbaric human-created system. And that's exactly right. The fir- I mean, when we, we create the black book of capitalism. Yeah. The millions and millions of present- preventable deaths from AIDS, from pneumonia, from malaria, not to mention just basic deprivation of health care that leads to tens of thousands of people to die every year in the United States is going to be on the books. And of course, we all know empirically that the production of low cost and generic drugs and state funded drugs and price controls have been the only way that we've ever controlled disease outbreaks. Throughout the Western world, reactions to this virus generally have not been a good look. Asian students in the in the UK have reported cases of verbal abuse, being pelted by eggs. Things got so bad in France that a hashtag has arisen to counteract the racism and xenophobia that students and, and people of Asian descent are experiencing. And here in the US, similar incidents have also ensued. And you pointed to this Instagram post, Jane, made by the University of California, Berkeley, that called xenophobia among the, quote, normal reactions those on campus might have in response to the coronavirus. So can you explain the significance of that post and the fallout surrounding it and what it exemplifies about the broader societal reaction to the coronavirus? That's right. So I think that that Instagram post for a lot of people really made explicit what was implicit before. So um the post to review for people who might not have seen it or heard about it, uh, UC Berkeley's um, health center has an Instagram account and had an infographic that described these normal reactions to um, coronavirus around campus. Um, so I'll note that so far, as far as I know, UC Berkeley has not had any reported cases of students infected with the virus. But among those normal reactions um, were anxiety, hypervigilance, and then also xenophobia, which Berkeley described as fears about interacting with those who might be from Asia. Um, And I think a lot of instances had come up before this post was even made where people were just casually nervous about the disease. Um, People saying that they had seen Asian people on the bus with masks on um, and wondering if that was maybe an indication that they were sick with coronavirus specifically. And I think that this post really just showed the prevalence of this fear, but I think it took it one step further and normalized it. And this was the general reaction from the Berkeley community, Uh, lots of alums and current student and and faculty um, banded together to say that that was not a normal reaction, um, that xenophobia was an unwarranted reaction to this disease. 
Racist reaction to Chinese people and Asian people here in the U.S. is nothing new, especially when we look at the broad swath of American history, which is something that you point out in your piece, Jane. You go all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the thinking that went into such legislation that banned Chinese immigrants from gaining full access to citizenship until the year 1965, which is completely unbelievable. So if you could tie this back... Jane, to the travel restrictions that the U.S. and other countries have now implemented. And you wrote that the United Nations World Health Organization has actually advised against such strict restrictions. Can you talk about that? Yes. So this Chinese exclusion or using um, disease as a reason to close borders or to um, exclude Chinese people specifically has been the case for over two centuries. So um, I talked with Jason Oliver Chang, who's a historian of Asian American history um, at University of Connecticut. Um, and he told me a lot about the history of Chinese exclusion and disease, um, specifically in the U.S. But in the 1800s, um, around the time that the coolie trade was bringing Chinese laborers all over the globe, um, because the conditions in which those laborers were living was just so terrible. They were kept in tiny close quarters, um, which is very ripe for disease to spread. Um, generally didn't have access to medical resources, um, were eating poorly and working long hours. Um, and diseases would just spread quickly among those populations. And over time, especially as there were labor groups that were concerned that Chinese people were taking those jobs um, or were just generally nervous about having new people around, um, this pointing to disease as a reason that Chinese people should be excluded or that immigration should be limited um, became more prevalent. So currently, um, like you said, the WHO has not recommended there to be any border closings, but um, it has seemed like countries have out of this paranoia and fear and most likely this long-term narrative um, that we have all been exposed to, even if subconsciously, um, that Chinese people might be carrying disease um, or that they might have some kind of um, illness um, or extra susceptibility to this illness. Um, that has been used as justification to close borders. Um, and it's mostly about power. Um, so I think China's reputation on the world stage right now definitely doesn't help. Um, certainly because China uh, has often been secretive about their policies, um, I think a lot of people have this extra paranoia around what is it that we actually know or what is it that they could be hiding about um, how this disease originated and then also how quickly it's spreading. Um, but crisis has always been used as a rationale for, for breaking the rules. And right now, I think a lot of countries are, are feeling like um, it's almost safer to just preemptively close the borders um, and try and get ahead of any potential spread. And, you know, that's really rich coming from some Western countries where there are growing anti-vaccination movements and entire clusters of outbreaks of measles and other various preventable diseases so for some of these countries to say we're going to close the borders to Chinese, it's like, really? Really?
of the disease has flashed across the globe rapidly. We have also seen the rapid spread of surgical masks as people look for ways to prevent getting sick. Used far more in Asian countries, masks have become increasingly popular in the U.S. in recent weeks. So, Natalia, big question. Do these masks work? Well, work for whom? I mean, if you, the, the conventional wisdom out there is that if you are a sick person already and going out in public, they can prevent spreading of the disease. If you are a person who is working in very close proximity to infected people or in areas like Wuhan with, you know, a high alert situation, um, they can protect you from contracting the illness. But something that we've learned from reading many, many articles on this topic is that they don't do much in terms of protecting people from contamination. And, and actually the more complicated versions of the masks, which are for healthcare workers can actually, if you don't know how to use them properly, increase the likelihood that you'll get the disease because you're constantly touching the outside of the mask to adjust it. You're touching your face, all things which um, just out of common sense lead you to, to be in more in contact with, uh, with viral infections. Well, certainly the CDC recommends hand washing over face masks. So why are face masks so prevalent? Well, I think what's interesting to think about, I mean, there's the medical use of this or the, or the idea that this is serving a medical purpose, but I think there's also a political and, and, and even social purpose to them as well. There, the ways in which, especially in certain Asian communities or cities, they're worn as a, as much as a sign of social solidarity around the issue as they are as a sort of, you know, health prevention measure. And I think that that can't be underestimated, particularly in a, crisis scenario. What's interesting is that that same symbol of social solidarity and of calmness amidst um, panic is seen quite differently in an American context. I think seeing those things raises people's alert um, levels um, in a U.S. context in the way that they do quite the opposite in in Asian contexts. I think that's a great point because I think in the U.S., particularly because it's typically Asian Americans um, and visitors from Asia who tend to wear the face mask in public, the face mask then become a sign of difference and a sign of sort of singling out both a person, but also a group of people, which leads to some pretty, I would say, negative consequences rooted in a pretty long history of associating um, Chinese immigrants, but also Asian immigrants more broadly as vectors of disease, which has been one of the major lines of racist slurs for the last 150 years for uh, people from Asia in the U.S., yeah, I think that's exactly right. I cannot believe the frequency with which I have heard casually people in the wake of this coronavirus or in the midst of it, not the wake of it, we're still in it, talking about like, well, those Chinese eat dogs. Or I yeah. heard that, um, you know, I heard that they don't clean their food before they eat. Like, you know, this kind of, or even potentially worse. I heard that they're shipping over boxes of rats from China. The, the Chinese government is doing that to the U.S. to spread it. And I mean, you know, I have to like, in that moment, either decide to be like, I don't want to talk to somebody who would say this or like sit them down for a lecture on, you know, anti-Asian racism. And particularly, Nikki, as you're saying, is framing Asian bodies as vectors of disease, which has this long history um, since at least, you know, to put a little history in it, certainly before the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act in 1883, which was the first immigration act in this country to exclude a group by national origin. 
And I think what's particularly interesting, given those examples you just mentioned, Natalia, of the sorts of conversations that are happening around this and that I think are particularly attached to moments in which, and we're generalizing here, but in moments in which Americans are seeing um, Asian persons wearing these face masks, like the face mask is perceived as the symbol, the representation of larger primitive cultural practices. And also, I think, erroneously connecting those to Eastern medicine or Eastern medical practices, when in fact, the history of the face mask in a lot of these Asian countries, particularly China and Japan, has actually been one that, you know, is a 100 years long and was rooted in those countries developing actually Western medical practices to deal with plague scenarios and other sorts of um, outbreak scenarios that were happening um, in their countries in the early 20th century. And so it has actually in um, many of these countries, Western associations, um, which is really interesting to think that they, again, how differently they are received in, I think, an American context. And that foundational moment in China in the 19 aughts, I think, had a really powerful cultural, medical, and even political impact. There was a case of pneumonic plague that was killing basically anyone who got it. And the insistence that face masks were a way of stopping the spread of this disease, particularly in the medical community, actually succeeded in that. Some 60,000 people died, but you could imagine that absent those face masks, the spread of a disease like that that's so contagious and so imminently deadly um, could have been absolutely devastating in China. And then when we get to uh, you know, about 10 years later with what was known then as the Spanish flu, the flu pandemic of 1919, 1920, um, face masks again become incredibly important, especially for medical personnel who are trying to prevent the spread of that disease. And while, you know, by the mid 20th century in Western medicine, you see a little bit less of this face mask usage in um, society more broadly, like back in the 1920s in the US, like normal people would be wearing face masks to prevent the spread of this disease that stops happening by about the 1950s. But in places like China and places like Japan, it continues to be deeply rooted in this idea that this is a way to help society, not right. suffer from these devastating pandemics and epidemics. Yeah, to me, that's just so interesting that that emphasis on a kind of collective health and uh, social good. And as you're saying, kind of modern Western medicine that is connected to the use of the mask in China specifically. As opposed to, I think here, like when I see people wearing the mask or even more so when I see on social media, like empty shelves in, uh, drugstores where that, where they've all been bought up or on Amazon, like people are stockpiling them. I think that of that much more as the kind of survivalist, individualistic hoarder mentality of like, you know, if there's mm -hmm. this disease, I'm here to protect myself, you know, and in some cases, even more egregiously make a buck off of it too, because there are people who are exploiting this. So, it is so different, so interesting how differently that plays out. The other thing that I was going to point out here is that also the mask has been really important in Asia and in other places, but in Asia for the prevention of the spreading of flu and other viral diseases, but also around air pollution. Right. And I think that that's something to think about as well in terms of the normalization of the use of these kind of masks in um, particular environments that, you know, has not yet been the case here, at least around pollution. 
Yeah, air pollution and allergens, right? So mm-hmm. there are a number of post-war changes, including um, new allergens that are blossoming as um, the temperature rises in China in particular, um, the pollution that you're talking about, Natalia, and then more recently, SARS. And that disease's sort of devastating effect, not just medically, but psychically, that saw a real profusion of public face mask wearing in the 1990s and 20 aughts. Even as all of those things are very much, you know, true in our own country, it's hard to imagine face mask really catching on as a widespread practice in the U.S. Um, I, I just kind of can't see it being adopted more largely. And I think in part because of the historic associations that it does have. Um, I, you know, talked about this on the show before, and you both know I worked across the street from the World Trade Center when 9-11 happened. We were the first building outside of the perimeter of, of the area that was shut down because of the attack. We didn't go back to work for more than a week, understandably, because of the events that had transpired and also the conditions on the ground. When we finally did return, we were all given face masks to wear because, of course, the air downtown New York was, was so horrible. And everyone walked around, you know, the offices for a week or more wearing those, but very self-consciously. And obviously, there's a very different context at work there. Um, But I think even as we did it, like people felt like this was not at all something that actually could do anything. And I think this kind of goes back to that tension between the medical use of this thing and the symbolic kind of political Mm -hmm. use of it and where those both kind of cohere and diverge. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I have found so interesting in reading more deeply about this is the way that in China, this has not been a purely secular process, that in part because the breath and air have such symbolism in um, various forms of Chinese religion, that there is more attention paid to the ill or the good that can be done based on what you inhale into your body. And so, and you know, that I think that connects as well to the fact that in that early 20th century pandemic, where they were first used in China, people would print talismans on the uh, on their face masks as well. And so I think it's a really interesting case or object in material culture to look at where kind of secular concerns, science and spirituality all converge. Yeah, and I think that that multi-use is really important. And why I think that I agree generally that you probably won't see a profusion of them in the US, but I could see a scenario in which you do. I mean, the changing climate, including more forest fires um, and smokier, smoggier air is one driver. Privacy feels like it could be another. I mean, there's a dual purpose in some ways to these masks in places like China. And that is with the rise of facial recognition software, there is an opportunity to at least disguise part of your face. Um, And during the uprisings in Hong Kong, where there were no mask laws put in place, there's a real tension between this cultural use of the masks for social health and this also desire not to be recognized by the government and the government's desire to have recognized shots of your face. That is a really good point. And I was actually thinking that the covering of the face contributes to another form of anti-Asian racism in the United States, which is that, you know, this longstanding trope of the faceless hordes, right? Mm -hmm. And that covering one's face, even though Nikki, as you point out, there's some very good reasons that are not medical around privacy, contributes to this notion of, you know, there's something shady, there's something that's not individualistic, there's this, this is this undistinguished mass. And to me, even 
even though there's a kind of protection of individualism that can go into masking your face against uh, facial recognition software, there seems to be something in the American sensibility, if we can even say there is something like that, that sees that as duplicitous, as, you know, I don't know, two-faced, no-faced, as just <laughs> dishonest, I don't know, or sh- or sketchy. I think that's right. And I think that if there's one other point worth pulling out of this um, before we wrap up, there's an economic angle to all of this as well. And that economic angle um, we see in the sort of fighting impulses between the nativist keep all Chinese people out of the United States and the way that this disease is impacting trade from China and the American desire both for economic health and for that economic trade and the goods that do come from China. Mm-hmm. including, for instance, Apple products. And this was true in the early 20th century as well, when a case of the plague came over with a rat on a Chinese ship, infects a bunch of people in San Francisco. There's a desire to shut down Chinese businesses, drive the Chinese out. And a few years later, there's an earthquake in San Francisco. Chinatown is razed to the ground. And here's this opportunity for anti-Chinese racist to get rid of Chinese San Franciscans once and for all. But because Chinatown was so vital to the economic heart of San Francisco, they rebuilt it anyway. And so I think that entanglement of both racism and economic interdependence is something that we see again and again in these cases. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing the incompetence of our government and the inevitable fragmented response. All In With Chris Hayes went into more detail of the dangers of having an incompetent administration in times of crisis. Ring of Fire explained supply chain economics and the hidden pharma middlemen now putting drug production in danger. Tom Hartman laid out a case for single-payer health care as part of a strong national defense. The Majority Report connected capitalism to the death toll of those who have and will die due to lack of access to health care. The Real News discussed the normalization of racism amid the virus panic. And finally, we just heard Past Present diving into the cultural perspectives of face masks. Members will be hearing more about the conservative propaganda encouraging people to see the virus as a hoax and a macro perspective on our economics, talking about how a severe disruption to international trade may force Americans to see something other than boundless affluence for the first time in a few generations. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is George calling in from Tonawanda, which is a suburb of Buffalo, New York. Um, I am just calling in general because I had a realization and I don't see it being shared anywhere in the news about the coronavirus and the effect it may have on the November election. So it's ramping up now and it's... um, coming to the United States, as the CDC said 
Um, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So the problem is uh, with voter turnout, people might be afraid to go to the polls and uh, show up to vote. And with lower vote turnouts, that actually benefits uh, Republicans. So that was one thing. Number two, it is extremely helpful when the pandemic occurs to enact uh, strict martial laws and create an authoritarian state and create an emergency state where the president has to stay in power or has a reason and people will willingly let this happen and they won't have a choice because it's logical. You know, it happened in China. And uh, reminders of death, I saw an article in Psychology Today. It says studies have been done, and it shows that reminders of death actually increase nationalism and uh, makes people vote more in favor of conservative presidential candidates and more likely to embrace their ideas of authoritarianism. So, yeah, and also with the stock market uh, being affected because of the economy being disrupted by the um, the isolation that is going to occur. So the oligarchs can buy up these stocks really cheap and uh, they'll own more and more and it'll make everyone else really fearful. So, please, I just wanted to, to bring that up, the effect looking forward to the election and uh, bringing out the fact of what might be coming down the pipe. Maybe if we know something about it, it won't be as scary as when it happens. Thank you very much. Um, love your podcast, and I appreciate your work. It's a valuable asset to society, and I try to spread the word, but maybe you can spread the word on this at least, because I think it's really important and it's scary. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in on all the comments and stuff about Bernie and being screwed over by the DNC, episode 1341, the comments on the end. You know, and I have no evidence to this, but with Amy and Pete signing out just before Super Tuesday, I can't help but think that the DNC machine had some strong arms into that. Now, maybe maybe they just did that on their own, but my suspicions are that there's more to that than than just honest politics. But regardless, the question comes up, how do we send a message to the DNC when we're unhappy with them? And it's my opinion that we can't do that on primary day. We can't do that when we're going to the polls. The way to do that actually is in your wallet and to make a donation to those progressive candidates in those movements that you want to support. Because I think in the end of the day, the statistical analysis of where did Obama get their grassroots support from, where does Bernie get their grassroots support from, they look at those numbers and they're threatened by them. And if we can get more people, and I don't think it takes a lot, a dollar or two, if we get more people to, to contribute to those campaigns, that's what fights the corporate donations. And so you can have a corporate donation of $100,000 being you know, valued at being given. But if you have 100,000 people giving a dollar here or a dollar there, I think that, you know, and, and these numbers, I'm just throwing them out there. But, but I think that stands for something and something that people need to consider as well. It's, it's, it's not hard to do. 
but I think it's worth doing because I think that sends a message and that sends a strong message because you're willing to not only cast a, a ballot, but you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. And I think that's what the language these people speak are. And that's how to fight the DNC machine. Unfortunately, that's that's the democracy today. Thanks. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I, I have some some bigger thoughts about the election and, and the dynamics of of the electorate, but I'm, I'm going to let them simmer for a few more days. I'll probably get to that next week. I'm not, I'm not trying to raise expectations or anything. I just, I don't feel like I have time at the end of this show uh, to get into everything. And I don't want to give undue focus to the so-called Bernie bros, but, and the reason I say I don't want to give undue Focus because I don't think that they are the majority of Bernie Sanders supporters, but we are in a situation where if you want progressive policies, there is one candidate left to vote for the moderate and, you know, conservative corporatist wing of the Democratic Party has consolidated around Joe Biden as their candidate Elizabeth Warren has officially dropped out. At this moment, she hasn't endorsed anyone. And so, as I try to always say, we should be acting strategically. And strategy has nothing to do with which politician you're in love with. It's not about love for an individual person. It's about a desire for specific policies and finding what avenue is available to get us to those policies. So, what I am baffled by, I mean, on one hand, I'm not because people aren't that bright, just in general, like myself included, lots, you know, not just actually dumb people, smart people, like we're all not that bright. We're, we're emotional, we're fickle, all of those sorts of things. It's just part of being human. But when I'm trying to be strategic, <laughs> I, I can see so clearly how badly uh, other people are doing at getting what they want. So uh, whether it's do or undo, just to focus on on the so-called Bernie bros who who are, you know, by my definition, the ones who are saying things that are incredibly unhelpful to the Bernie Sanders campaign in an effort to be helpful, which just as a description sort of tells you everything you need to know. I don't know why people think that saying things that are incredibly antagonistic and possibly offensive to those who you may be trying to convince of your opinion is the right way to go when trying to convince them of your opinion. It seems clear as day that warranted or not, because as, as I said, like we're all not that bright and we're emotional and fickle, but it seems clear as day that the people who are maybe interested in Bernie Sanders style policies, but not interested in voting for him, almost universally say it's because of his supporters. 
And, you know, that, that, that may be wrong. It may be unwarranted for them to think that, but they still think that. And it comes from something real. There, there's a seed of truth there. So the, these people who are announcing themselves as strong Bernie Sanders supporters and then going around saying terrible, hateful, antagonistic things to people really, really aren't doing themselves any favors unless they aren't who they say they are, which is always a possibility. And if, I mean, of course, some of them aren't who they say they are, but I would never say that none of them are genuine people who have radically left economic perspectives and radically like right-wing hateful opinions on race or gender or sexism and all of that that sort of leads them to uh you know fall into this bernie bro category so just for self-preservation uh what i recommend is you know bernie supporters you catch more flies with honey than with a shotgun as the old saying goes if you're interested in implementing progressive policies which necessitates the election of someone like Bernie Sanders, or in this year's case, specifically Bernie Sanders, try being sensitive to the fickle, strange, emotional, not always logical emotions of people who, for whom Bernie Sanders is not their first choice. That's my advice. And as always, remember, if you want to move forward in a more just society, vote with the most vulnerable communities and tell everyone else to do the same. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with everyone's favorite news by Limerick. And of course, the big news is that the centrists have all consolidated around their candidate and at Limericking writes on Twitter, the centrists put conflict on pause, uniting to make common cause and nominate Joe. Let's slowly aim low. They stated to cheers and applause. <laughs> <laughs>